Once upon a time, a long time ago, in the, uh, a wise man wandered into the ancient kingdom of Gorf. He found that all of the people in this kingdom seemed to be afflicted with the same set of diseases. They all had a common uh, respiratory problem characterized by a hacking cough. There were no old people in the kingdom because everybody died by age 50 or 60. There's an extraordinary number of birth defects. I mean, notice that people who in their uh, uh, middle-aged years didn't work very efficiently. He asked about it and was told that people lose their eyesight around age, start losing their eyesight around age 30 or 35. Well, this wise man was something of a scientist, so he began an investigation of the problem. And after months of painstaking research, he discovered the root of the problem. The one salt mine in the kingdom of Gorf was contaminated, and everybody in the kingdom liked to salt their food. And therefore, daily, they were partaking of this poisonous contaminant. Well, as soon as he found out the problem, he went on a personal crusade trying to rid the kingdom of these unnecessary sufferings. But the people just laughed at him. They said, these problems are just part and parcel of human existence. Everybody suffers the same things. Besides, we like our food salted. If it didn't have salt on it, it tastes very bland. At first they laughed at him. And they mocked and ridiculed him. And finally they drove him from their kingdom, wanting to hear his his uh, nonsense no more. This morning, we're going to look at another wise man and at his warnings. And if we're not careful, we'll be like the people of the kingdom of Gore. Laughing at him, taking a problem lightly simply because it's a very common problem, and as a result, suffering unnecessary misery. The wise man is Jesus Christ. The problem, the warning, he says that mankind is infected with the disease of sin. And that if it's not stopped, any outbreak of of plague is going to uh, infect and wreak great damage in the lives of people. Turn with me to Matthew 18. And we'll see his teaching on this subject. You read verses 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble It is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Our story begins with a question on the part of the disciples. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Chapter 16, Jesus had said that Peter was the rock upon whom he was building the church. To him the keys of the kingdom of heaven were being given. In chapter 17, only three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were taken Uh, by Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. The last story in chapter 17 
we find that the tax collectors come to Peter, whom they assume to be the leader of the group, and ask him, is your master going to pay the two drachma tax? And so they're asking, is Peter then the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is there any hope for us? They were preoccupied with this question and asked this or a similar question on at least four occasions as the Gospels record for us. Jesus' response to them repeatedly was the same. True greatness comes from serving others, not from trying to exalt yourself. So he takes a child and stands him in their midst. And he uses that child as a living illustration of two things. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, first of all, you must be humble like a child. And secondly, you must serve the child. The disciples were preoccupied about being great in the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus says, let's get first things first. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be great there. And what becoming like a child means is explained in verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself is this child. And here he tells us some very important facts about salvation and the message we should preach. He says that it's not enough necessarily for a person to simply say the words, Jesus, come into my heart to receive salvation. He says, unless you're converted or turn, turn about, unless you turn from your sins, unless you repent, as John the Baptist and Jesus both put it, as you turn from your old life of sin and turn to God, to Christ as the Lord of your life, asking Him to remake your life and run it for you, unless you come to Him in humility, realizing that you're a, a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. It's not enough to simply say, Jesus, come into my heart, if we mean by that simply, uh, well, I might as well cover all my bases. Maybe that one will work, so I'll uh, take out an insurance policy here. Or if we mean simply, uh, well, my life is pretty well together, but I acknowledge some need, so I'll let Jesus fill that need. No, he says, we must become like a child, humble, with unfeigned, utter and absolute dependence upon the Father for sustenance, for direction, for strength. And only then can we enter the kingdom. And he says if you want to be great, you must maintain the same childlike dependence upon the Father, this humility whereby you can acknowledge your wrong, you can acknowledge your need, and you can look to Him as the source of your life and strength. The second thing he says is that you must receive minister to the child. Verse 5, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Receiving the child is not a means of salvation. We're not receiving Jesus in that way. But we're receiving Jesus Christ in the sense that we are opening ourselves up for a further and a deeper relationship to Him as we receive one child in His name because of our relationship with Him. Now, the child here is an illustration and a symbol of that which is weak and insignificant. In the ancient world, the child had no status. In the very next chapter, the disciples didn't get the point. Some people tried to bring 
some children to Jesus to have them bless uh, him bless them. And the disciples rebuked him. This is the master. Don't bother him with these insignificant people. Bring somebody important. Some adults. Some politicians or statesmen or some priests or some wealthy people. But don't bring these little children. According to Roman law, a father had absolute legal authority over the life of his children. He could sell his children into slavery. He could kill them if he wanted to for any reason whatsoever and do so without any action being taken against him by the legal authorities because they had no status. Now, it's true that that a man would be happy if his quiver was full of children, but not because they had significance in themselves in the ancient world, but because they would be important as soon as they got old enough to help work the farm, and they would be your social security. When you got old and, and feeble, your children could then take care of you. And you'd be happy if you had many, just in case some of them didn't make it. But the children were insignificant. Jesus says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then you must receive the child. Now, I think it's uh, with significance that this passage happened to fall in the month when we're uh, recruiting for our Sunday school staff for the next year. Churches perennially have problems with Sunday school staffs. Every church I've ever been to, every church I've uh, uh, talked to people about, they always have problems. The reason is is uh, plain enough. We tend to be immature not to have Jesus' attitude. We tend to devalue the little ones. If you ask many Christians, would you teach a Bible class for some men or some women? They'd say, oh, I'd be flattered. Yes, I'd like to do that. Then you ask the same person, would you teach a, a class, a Sunday school class for some children? Well, no, I don't really think I'd be interested in that. Why the difference? Because we adopt the worldly attitude that the disciples reflect here, that adults are significant, children are insignificant. And we want to gain status and uh, uh, good feelings uh, and be have our egos built up through our ministries. And therefore, we want to choose ministries that will be to the significant people. Well, you can see our attitudes towards children a lot of times as you watch adults and we socialize. If you're coming to the picnic uh, this evening in Municipal Park, watch. You'll find a table and two families will be at the table and the adults will talk to one another and they'll ignore the children. The children will sit there as bumps in the log and the uh, adults won't interact with them. This is... This is uh, often the case. We have a neighbor boy who's about five, and when we he first started coming over to the house to play, we would talk to him directly, look him in the eye. We noticed that he seemed very uncomfortable. He wouldn't look us in the eye, and he didn't know how to respond, and it, it appeared to us that, that no adult had ever talked to him directly. We tend to devalue the children is insignificant. Jesus is saying that if we are going to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if we're going to have the values and attitudes of our heavenly Father, we must reach out to the, to the seemingly insignificant.
We must receive the child. As I said, we're on a Sunday school recruitment uh, drive this month. Uh, We have more children than we have volunteers to teach the children. And so what we're doing is, is putting together a cooperative Sunday school effort so that what we're asking is that all who have children will cooperate by being involved to some extent. In your bulletin, you'll see the, the different levels of involvement, the teacher or teacher associate. Now, if you haven't volunteered yet, then you can simply fill out the uh, uh, part in the bottom, the tear out in the bottom of your bulletin, put it in the offering plate later this morning when it comes around. Jesus' words here also have importance, I think, in the issue of homogeneity in Christian groups. Church growth experts tell us that if we stay to homogeneous groups in churches or Bible study groups or whatever, then they're going to grow faster. In other words, if we have one group for blue-collar workers between 25 and 35 with small children, another group for professionals over 50 who make over $40,000 a year and have teenage children, another group for uh, divorcees over 35, another group for married couples without children, uh, one for the for the uh, never married, etc., etc. If we have all these homogeneous groups, then, we'll, then they'll all grow with maximum speed. Now, I don't doubt that that's true. But the problem with that approach, or following it exclusively at least, is that we need to mix with those not like us. Jesus says that, that we must receive the child. And by the child, he means not simply those who are literally children. But the person who's poor, or the person who's a loner, the one who maybe is, is not socially very attractive, the one who doesn't come from the same background we do or have the same marital status or the same kind of job. We need to mix. We need to learn to extend ourselves and serve, not simply have all of our friendships based upon people who are just like us, make us feel good and comfortable. Now, we stay with the uh, principle of homogeneity in our adult Sunday school classes, by and large, and they're broken down according to those various categories. Yet, we're trying to break some of that down through our area fellowship meetings. We, as, as most of you know, the church is divided into eight different geographical regions, and, and once a month, uh, next week will be our meeting this month, We meet together and we're trying in those. One of the things we're trying to do is to mix together the young and the old, the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, the the married and the unmarried, so that we can grow and discover what it's like to be a body together. Now, so far, people who are single and people who are children have complained that those of us who are probably in the majority of those meetings, who are married uh, and adults, tend to ignore them. And I think they're right. If you look at what we do, we congregate towards the people who are just like us. We need to extend ourselves and reach out and make all comfortable, serve every person within the body of Christ. Jesus says if we're going to be great in the kingdom of God, we must be humble and we must humbly serve the humble of society. 
In verse 6, we have the opposite response to the little ones. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. The one who causes the little one to stumble is the one who is proud and arrogant. And he thinks that he alone is a significant person. And therefore he can ignore the little ones, whether they're the literal children or whether they're simply those who happen to be unattractive and, and uh, uncultured and uh, unathletic and uncool and un everything else that they value. Now we may think only of child pornographers when we think of those who cause the little ones to stumble. But we must also think of ourselves if our homes are filled with bitterness and rancor, if we put up a religious front and yet just play games with God. We must think of ourselves as a church collectively. If somebody who's not uh, middle class, married and reasonably well-adjusted as most of us are, comes in and they find that they're not accepted. We can cause such people to stumble if they don't find love and warmth here because we're all congregating with simply with people who are like us. We can cause that person to stumble as they leave the door and say, I can't find love here. I'll try the bar. Jesus says, woe to you if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. It's a very serious thing. And then from the seriousness of this sin, he moves on to the seriousness of sin in general in verses 7 through 9. The connection with what precedes seems to be that the disciples were asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, the one who is humble and humbly serves the little one. But one thing that keeps us from doing so is devaluing sin, taking it lightly. And therefore, we let it enter our, our own lives and, and slowly and quietly ruin us. First, he continues in verse 7 of the sin of, of causing one of these little ones to stumble. And then he generalizes in 8 and 9. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For, what, uh, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two feet or two hands, two hands or two feet, to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the hell of fire. He says we must take sin seriously. Now, he doesn't mean that we should literally cut off our hands and feet and pluck out our eyes or that we are going to be cast into hell simply for one sin. But in his, his customary manner of speaking, he's saying that we need to take sin seriously. Don't play with fire, he says. It will burn you. I have a friend who was approached one time by a prostitute. And he said, no, I uh, cannot accept your offer. It would be too costly for me. She felt that maybe she was overcharging for her services. 
But then he explained, no, that's not it. It would cost me here. The disruption in my relationship with my wife, the the uh, disruption in my relationship with God, the guilt I'd have, the memories that would haunt me would not be worth it. It would cost too much. All sin is like that. Not just this one particular sin. It's too costly to play with, Jesus says. It's going to destroy. It may not appear as such on the surface. And yet it will get to you. Sin is rather like cancer. You can have cancer, and for a while the symptoms don't appear. And as you hide from it, or the symptoms seem seem slight and insignificant, you think, well, I'm not going to go to a doctor, I'm not going to try to do anything about it. But then before you know it, the symptoms are so severe, and the cancer is spread so thoroughly that you cannot be helped. Sin is much the same. We can, it can always be helped. We can always turn from it and find forgiveness and cleansing from our Lord. But it works in insidious ways. It might be quiet. It might be unobserved. And we are tempted to say, well, it's no big deal. And yet Jesus says we are to take it seriously. Whether it's a sin of causing one of these little ones to stumble, or merely the sin of gossip or irritability, or a number of other things that we justify and rationalize as part of our common human existence. In verses 10 through 14, Jesus turns back to the theme of verses 4 and 5, the significance of the individual person, no matter how small or insignificant he might appear to society, and the seriousness of despising such a one. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. He says don't despise the little ones. Whether they're the literal children or the social outcasts. Don't say, we have a comfortable church with the ninety and nine. Why bother reaching out to the person who's unattractive to me? Now, I know that for you who are in high school, the the peer pressure of wanting to be cool is particularly acute. And yet, for those of us as adults, we experience the same thing. We can despise the little one. But Jesus says, don't do it, because there are angels in heaven are observing the face of their father and they're going to report to him what what you're doing. And someday, you'll have to give account for your lives. He says, no, if a man has a hundred sheep, even though he uh, only one of them strays, he goes and searches it, searches it out and brings it back. He says, it's not the will of your father that that one of these little ones perish. 
Rather than ignoring or despising, we are to reach out, to seek out, to try to minister to the person who's lonely, the person who's hurting, the person who doesn't seem to fit in, the person who has no value to most people. Rather than simply going for for all of the the status people or those who are just like us. Jesus says each individual is highly significant to God. He says in verses 1 to 14 that sin is serious. We need to take it seriously, whether it's it's uh, the sin of despising the insignificant person or any sin. It's cancerous. Its effects are going to ravage life. And then in verses 15 to 20, he says we should not only take sin seriously in our own lives, but also in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if it is not listened to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now this passage, I think, has to be one of the most neglected in church life today. We neglect its practice for at least three reasons that I can think of. One is relativism. Two is individualism, and three is just plain selfishness. We live in a relativistic age. We are told that you do your thing and I'll do my thing. You have no right to tell me what to do. I have no right to tell you what to do. Everybody does what he feels is right for himself. And it's true that we have no right to push our prejudices on somebody else and to force people to do just what we think they ought to do. And yet we who are Christians are part of a covenanted community. We have all publicly declared that Jesus Christ is our Lord. We have committed ourselves to follow His Word. And therefore, there are moral absolutes binding upon us. Therefore, it's not only fitting, but an obligation of us to hold one another accountable to that which we have confessed. To follow His Word. Another thing that keeps us from this is individualism. We Idahoans are plagued sometimes by a a frontier mentality of self-sufficiency and doing it on alone, by ourselves. We're also infected by secular humanistic thought that tells us we have a right to privacy, we are self-sufficient, we don't need other people. This kind of attitude and its effects upon the church are are well uh, described by A.B. Bruce in his book, The Training of the Twelve. Let me read to you what he says. Men who do not regard ecclesiastical fellowship 
as imposing any obligation to love their Christian brethren, think, consciously or unconsciously, of the church as if it were a hotel where all kinds of people meet for a short space, sit down together at the same table, then part, neither knowing nor caring anything about each other. While in truth, the church is rather a family whose members are all brethren, bound to love each other with pure uh, uh, heart fervently. Of course, this hotel theory involves as a necessary consequence the disuse of discipline. For, strange as the idea may seem to many, the law of love is the basis of church discipline. It is because I am bound to take every member of the church to my arms as a brother that I am not only entitled, but bound to be earnestly concerned about his behavior. We are taught by our society, I think, to view the church as as, uh, a movie theater almost. We can come and sit down with strangers or as a hotel, as he says, leave with no relationship to the people around us. And yet, as Bruce points out, we are a family. You may want to be saved just to do, do a lone ranger thing with God, but he never does that. He makes us all part of a family fellowship. Or as Paul describes it, we are part of a body. The hand can't say, well, I want to do my own thing for a while. I'm not going to relate to the rest of the body. It would wither and die without the blood and bring food and oxygen to it. And its absence would cause great harm to the rest of the body. We need one another. We are interrelated, interdependent, whether we like it or not. We need to live this out. And part of the part of what this means is that we have an obligation to help one another deal with issues of sin that arise in our midst. Now, many of us know that there are moral absolutes to which we have committed ourselves. We know that we are a body and have responsibilities, and yet we fail to to confront because of selfishness and self-consciousness. I'll be the first to admit that it's very, I feel very awkward going to somebody and saying, well, here's something that's wrong in your life. We hide behind rationalizations. Well, I don't know the person that well. Somebody else should do it. Or, it's true that she did that, but the leaders of the church ought to talk to her about that, not me. I'd be presumptuous to do that. Or, well, maybe it's not right, but it's not the worst of sins. We'll just let it pass. And so, unlovingly, we let sin enter our body infect our lives individually and corporately because we're not willing to follow Jesus' commands and take it seriously. Now, this is a body matter, a matter for the family. He says, if your brother sins, go and reprove him. Now, the reproof is only needed, is not needed simply because of sin. We all do that quite frequently. But it's needed when the sin is not repented of. The person repents of the sin, uh, demonstrates a repentant attitude, there's no need to do this. But if the person has uh, is unrepentant, he says, go and reprove him. In private, you're not out to embarrass him, but to help him. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. You have, and you can stop there. 
But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. So that the facts of the case might be confirmed, what he has done. It might be confirmed that this is a violation of Scripture, not just the the, uh, personal prejudice of uh, an uptight, uh, nosy, busybody. And they can confirm also that sin is serious and needs to be dealt with. And if he refuses to listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And that society of, of uh, Jews who were legalistic, Gentiles and tax gatherers were total social outcasts. Jesus says, if you want to use the term, excommunicate him. Cut him off from the communion, the fellowship of the church. Now, it may seem, as it does to many of us, a very unloving thing to do, and yet it is love itself which motivates us to do this. This last step should be an unusual one. The first step of merely talking to a person about the sin should be enough in most cases. If we're committed to Christ, then we should be willing to say, you're right. That was wrong. I need to confess it and turn from it. It seems unloving, possibly, to take these kinds of steps to maybe even excommunicate somebody. And yet, because sin is so serious and must be dealt with, it's the loving thing to do to force him to to to, to face up to the seriousness of what he's doing to himself. That's why Jesus says to do it. Verses 18 to 20 have been variously interpreted I think we'll do best to keep them in the context in which they're found. The verses preceding and the verses following have to do with the matters of, of uh, sin that have been uh, sin and forgiveness within the church. He says, whatever you bind on earth or loose on earth uh, will be loosed in heaven, loosed or bound in heaven. In other words, the matters of discipline that you bind in the church or if you investigate a matter and and the, or the person repents, and you loose uh, any kind of action, Jesus' point is that your Father in heaven will back you up. He's the one who's commanding this action. He takes sin seriously. And therefore, you have His support in it. In verse 19, Jesus says, Again I say to you, which indicates He's repeating in 19 what He has said in 18. And the prayer of the two of, of the two people... Uh, apparently is some kind of prayer having to do with the church discipline. If to even just a small number, two or three of you, gather in prayer about such a matter, I'm there in your midst supporting you. Uh, probably the prayer would be of, of putting him out into the dominion of Satan, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, you put him out away from the fellowship of the church into the world so that he might see the ugliness of sin as the grace of God is removed from his life and as the encouragement of Christian fellowship is taken away so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Our ultimate goal is the, is the redemption of this person. We're not out for vengeance. We're not out to punish. But we're looking for, for his turning and healing. 
Now, it's my prayer that we at Cole Community Church might take this passage very seriously. I realize it's a difficult one. It runs counter to uh, certain things that are our natural inclinations. It runs counter to many of the teachings of the world. But I think that we experience a real spiritual flabbiness as we are conformed to the world around us. As we think, I can be an individual, Lone Ranger Christian, not related to other people, not uh, opening myself up to them for them to help me, not opening myself up to them to help them. We are infected often by the worldly attitude of indifference to and toleration of sin. We're to tolerate sinners. We're all that. And yet we're to deal very seriously with the sin in our own lives and the lives of brothers and sisters because it is such a serious, debilitating, cancerous poison. My prayer is that we will not be like the people of the kingdom of Gorf who laugh at the warnings of this wise man, Jesus Christ, and say, but everybody does it. I'd be an oddball if I were to think uh, that I had to, to do what you're saying. We might take lightly the disease that plagues us and as a consequence, like the people of Gorf, suffer misery needlessly. Let's pray. Father, we need You. We do want to take Your Word seriously. We thank You for Your instruction you have given us to lead us in truth and righteousness and healing. Help us, Lord, to, to take you seriously, to take your call to holiness seriously, both in our lives individually and our lives together corporately. Lord, we need your strength and your grace to obey these teachings. We thank you for your presence, the power of your Spirit within us to enable us to do all that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.